FBI testified before, um, I think it was the House Judiciary Committee, and he testified and he changed the, the, the prioritization. They talked about homegrown violent extremists being a big threat from an international standpoint, but then number two was domestic terrorism, and they talked about the growing threat. And for the first time, that was when the FBI actually categorized white supremacists as domestic terrorists. Welcome to a special edition of AML Conversations. This is John Byrne, I'm your host for this program. With the horrific shootings in the past two weeks in Gilroy, California, Dayton, Ohio, and El Paso, Texas, I thought it was important that we bring back uh, someone who we've interviewed before to talk about not only the rise of domestic terrorism, which clearly those acts are, but also what can the AML community do, if anything, to assist law enforcement either pre or post investigation. I would note as we uh, did this interview, stories in today's uh, New York Times, and we did this on the 6th of August, so things obviously are evolving and changing. But there's a story in the Times today that said the gunman who killed three people in Gilroy had a target list of religious institutions, Democratic and Republican political organizations, federal buildings as well. And the FBI announced that it had opened up a domestic terrorism investigation. We also believe at this point the same thing is relevant in El Paso. Information is still incomplete regarding Dayton. But the bottom line is white supremacists in the past year have turned more violent than ever before. So I asked Dennis Lormel, actually the first person I ever interviewed for uh, my very first podcast, to come back and talk to us about domestic terrorism. He's been doing a lot of training about that in a number of uh, banker-driven programs that he's been involved in. And give us some insight into what we can be looking for as AML professionals to perhaps provide information to law enforcement, uh, either pre- and post-investigation, to assist in going after the number of these individuals that have committed these heinous acts. This is a long interview. I hope you'll get a lot of good information from it, and we'll be uh, out on the back end uh, to give you a little more information about a task force that we've considered starting based on this information. So I ask you to uh, sit back and listen to Dennis Larmel talk about domestic terrorism on AML Conversations. Interesting, Dennis, that... Um you were the very first person I interviewed for the podcast that started a couple of years ago. And um, I reached out to you to see if we could do it again because sadly what's, uh, what we witnessed last weekend in El Paso, which is all too frequent, is just another example of what you've been talking about to bankers in a number of recent presentations. It's on domestic terrorism. So what I want to do is... Um, get you to give us some ideas of the tools to fight domestic terrorism and some of the funding issues. But maybe if you could walk us back from, I don't know if this is, this is fair to say this was the original attack, but certainly Oklahoma City in the 90s was when the country was first enveloped by, gee, people around us can cause these sorts of things. 
Um, and then I want to talk about tools, not just uh, financial tools, but maybe legislative tools that can be helpful because a lot of folks have been on the air the past couple of days talking about the need for Congress to do something. But what jumps out at you, given what's happened recently, going back to what happened with Oklahoma City? It doesn't have to be just about the financial side, but so that our AML community can better understand how we can, um, we can be better prepared to, to help law enforcement. Well, John, thanks, first of all, for interviewing me again. And I'm sorry it's under these circumstances when we're talking about the domestic terrorist attacks in the last two weeks. We've had three, uh, three attacks, and, and it's very troubling. So um, in, in looking at it, going back in time, uh, Oklahoma City certainly was a seminal moment for federal law enforcement right. because it demonstrated to us just how dangerous the threat of domestic terrorism was. But it goes back even further back than that. When I was in Pittsburgh as the ASAC, we had um, a, a group, a domestic, uh, an anti-government group, militia type of group in West Virginia that planned to blow up the FBI facility in West Virginia. So this has been something that's been ongoing and goes back many, many years. Uh, unfortunately, over time, after 9-11 in particular, we changed our focus to international terrorism. And then the Patriot Act hit. And the Patriot Act certainly impacted federal, uh, f f the, f the, the international problem, um, much more so than the domestic side. And that's one of the things, kind of in reverse order here, if I could, you asked about legislation. And, and the thing that we're very challenged when it comes to domestic terrorism because there is no domestic terrorism legislation. Right. So that's one of the first fixes we need is, is there needs to be some really thoughtful consideration uh, about meaningful legislation because it's not just say let's, let's designate groups or white supremacists because now we're looking at individuals who are acting on an individual lone wolf capacity, which is a lot different. So sanctions wouldn't have the same meaning on them as they would an organization. Uh, so that's a consideration. And then we have the constitutional First Amendment rights and, and Second Amendment and things. So there are a lot of sensitivities that have to be dealt with, but we still need to clean that. We need to, we need to have a legislative fix. But going back, so after 9-11, our focus was on international terrorism. And we, we didn't overlook domestic terrorism because after I retired from the FBI and I started giving terrorist financing presentations because I felt that um, terrorist financing wasn't really understood and you needed to promote awareness, I always included um, slides on domestic terrorism. And unfortunately, there were actors that you could point to that were ongoing cases. Some of them were kind of humorous. They didn't succeed. Right. And their plots were, were really uh, you know, very unsophisticated, so we, we, we didn't take it as seriously. Um, over time, because of the threat, particularly of the Islamic State, and, and the, the true threat caused by al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, and now the phenomenon, again, from an international standpoint, of the homegrown violent extremists, we've really overlooked domestic terrorism. And, one of the things, and you, you mentioned also that in the last year, I've started to bring these back into my presentations. And, and part of that was our own community, the AML community. Um, at two a, uh, the last two ACAMS conferences, when I did the terrorist financing panels, we got questions on domestic terrorism. What are we doing? What's the domestic threat? Why aren't we addressing the domestic threat? 
And I started thinking and going back, and so I started at that point to include um, domestic terrorism in all my presentations. And then coincidentally, when I was doing research, because you, I, I try to refresh, freshen the, the, the material uh, periodically, and I saw that in March, uh, Director Ray from the FBI testified before, um, I think it was the House Judiciary Committee, and he testified and he changed you know, the, the prioritization. They talked about homegrown violent extremists being a big threat from an international standpoint, but then number two was domestic terrorism and they talked about the growing threat. And for the first time, that was when the FBI actually categorized white supremacists as domestic terrorists, because prior to that, and prior to 2018, it was um, the, the, um, the, the, the hate crimes and the white supremacists were treated in the violent crimes program. So they weren't even considered necessarily terrorists. And it's just in, this, in the last few years, and I think the pivot point here is the New Zealand um, right. shooting, uh, in, where the church, in, the two mosques in, in New Zealand, where the shooting was, because now, um, as as I talked about in my presentation, we were at uh, the um, the Mile High um, anti money laundering session last week, and I talked about the internationalization of domestic terrorism, and that's a term I've made up. And what does yep. that mean exactly? So what, what it means there is, just like international terrorism, mm -hmm. the domestic actors are going online, and they're out there in these chat rooms, and oftentimes they get into private chat rooms that law enforcement can't penetrate, and they feed off of each other. And, and what's happening here is, is domestic terrorists from the United States are reaching out to domestic terrorists, like-minded individuals, white supremacists in other countries. And, and consequently, they're, they're feeding off of each other and they're following each other. So you go to the, um, the New Zealand shooting, and in fact, um, the El Paso shooter in his manifesto, Refer referenced him, he referenced that. Yeah. And, and if you go back and you look at these different a acts that are being linked to, to hate crimes or white supremacists, um, there's that thread back to this guy in New Zealand, and, and he goes back to other crimes that, that emanated from the United States. Um, there was the uh, Netherlands, right. the act that was over there. So one of the things that I noticed, um, I went to a conference sponsored by the FBI where they were sharing case studies and, and typologies. And they talked about domestic terrorism and they talked about it becoming a growing problem. And they talked about some of these lone wolf actors in the United States are actually traveling internationally to meet people in other countries and, and kind of bring back their best practices for bad things um, in, in that regard. So you know, I, that's why I refer to it now as the internationalization of domestic terrorism, although it's a domestic issue. And, and clearly, um, it, it's a, a US specific, but every country has the same issue. And, and the fact that they're crossing borders and they're communicating on the internet, and especially on social media, right. uh, is very troubling. So uh, we talked about this before we started this conversation. Uh, a former uh, FBI special agent, Ali Sufan, that you've worked with, wrote an op-ed piece in the uh, New York Times a couple days ago with your, your point he made. He said basically that um, the FBI needs to advocate and Congress needs to update the post 9-11 legislation to allow domestic terror groups to be designated, like you say, the same way as foreign ones. 
Now, I had heard that that would give, if that happened, then law enforcement agents like those from the FBI would have access to be able to go into some of these discussion groups and see things in advance. I think I heard somebody on television, one of the talking heads yesterday, say that exactly, that if those tools were available, not saying it would have prevented the attack, but they would have known in real time as opposed to, uh, you know, 20 minutes before the El Paso shooter acted, he posted something on that website, but they would have perhaps known earlier if uh, domestic terrorism had, had the same legislative oversight that uh, foreign terrorists have. That's a tremendous point, and, and maybe that's the direction we need to go. So let, let me explain that a little bit. Sure. So in international terrorism, um, it's easier to get more invasive investigative techniques because we're dealing with non-U.S. persons, or if they are U.S. persons, they've pledged allegiance and, and, and they've already um, committed the act of providing material support to a terrorist. So it's a lot easier to get the, what they call the FISA court uh, warrants. And, and we don't have that on the domestic side because we're dealing with U.S. citizens. Right. And so you, you, you can't have the, we don't have the same laws that would allow that level of potential intrusion into privacy. And, and certainly that's one of the considerations Congress has to look at because we have to do this right. Uh, we certainly have to protect uh, and safeguard American liberties. But at the same time, and in and, and the same consideration, we've got to take steps to enhance the laws so that law enforcement have the tools that they need. Because if they could get out into these chat rooms, um, and, and if they can get out with more invasive investigative techniques like the right. undercover technique, um, there, there's a lot that they can do proactively. There's that term that I use in some of my um, especially on the, um, it, I apply it to the international side of terrorism, flash to bang. Right. And f from a terrorism standpoint, that means flash would be the point where somebody wants to commit an act, that they're going to commit an act and they start planning it. And then bang is when they actually carry out the act. So your example here in El Paso, for instance, that individual put out a manifesto 20 minutes before he shot. Now, the likelihood that they could have in, you know, interacted and, right. and, and, and stopped him was very minimal. But the fact, if we had those, those tools available and they had been on to him, uh, he might have even been under uh, surveillance at that point sure. in time. And, and so that could have helped, at a minimum, disrupt this before it got to the stage it did. So let's talk about that. So the tools that you mentioned, internet activity, uh, you say um, what you've also talked about quite a bit is situational awareness of so tripwires in the community. Um, give us a sense of some of these tools. So what do you, when you talk about, I know what human sources mean, uh, obviously you have people on the ground that are catching wind of some things and can report it, but talk about that and your network uh, analytics and then what you mean by, what I think you mean by community tripwires is neighbors and workers and co-workers who sort of get a sense that somebody's more than just a little off, you know, for, for a variety of reasons. But talk about some of the tools with or without legislation that could help domestic terrorism be prevented or identified. And then we'll talk about funding specifically because that's where the AML community's potential assistance comes 
yeah. uh, comes to the fore. So, in 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 this regard, um, you, you know, it it it's really it's it comes down to public-private partnerships. We've got to do more from a public-private perspective in terms of forming partnerships. Number one, and and number two. Is, is this is where understanding the crime problems and the threats become so important. So that community tripwire, um, that's the community taking notice, as you pointed out, that somebody uh, is changing, they've gotten more radical, there's ramblings. There are gonna be red flags. In all of these instances, if you go back to the run-up of these events, there are gonna be red flags that were evident to people around the, the the perpetrator that that someone could have could have done something to intercede in in these events but so what we need to look at is I look at this on two levels a strategic level and a tactical level so the strategic level that's the community tripwire where we get out and try to identify at the community level um, the at-risk people or the people more likely or, or the people who have the problems. So from the standpoint of the homegrown violent extremists, that's a little different. Right. It's similar but different because we're looking for people who are getting wrapped up in that ideology. On the white supremacist side and the hate crime side, you know, that's going to be a little different. Certainly similar because of the because of their own ideologies and things. And then we have the tactical approach. And the tactical approach is where financial institutions would come into play. And that's where we would try to put the financial tripwires and alerting mechanisms together. And that's where law enforcement needs to help the banks by providing the, 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 the scenarios, um, the, the different case studies and typologies that would help us. But when it comes to domestic terrorism, and especially when we're talking about these these individuals, who um, who 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 are lone wolf, and and it's so difficult because they're isolated. Well, if they don't interact, yeah. If they're all you and, see is social media, they live in their proverbial mother's basement and maybe don't do much. They work out of the house potentially, so it's not that simple. Right? No, and there aren't going to be your traditional red flags, financial red flags. You're not going to have the alerts. Uh, What's going to trigger something is going to be the adverse media, right. um, or, or let's say the, the negative news after an event when the name comes up. Then everybody's running it, and oh my gosh, you know we may have an account relationship with this individual, or a credit card, or some type of uh, That'd relationship. That'd be after the fact. That's post, exactly, right? yeah, exactly. So that you know that becomes problematic um, in in that regard. I think the one area where I, I think law enforcement should start looking more and. Again, the legislative fix needs to go there, but perhaps financial institutions can do this, is not only when you look at the negative news, but are they screening against social media? And to what extent can you do that? Yeah, how how practical just, how is that? Like that? But I, I think that the, the real warning signs are going to be in the social media. Right. Uh, that's where, where, where they're, they're putting things in. I, I, that's where maybe the legislation needs to look potential legislation and how can we help law enforcement get involved in that get involved because, in that because they're not because doing this on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter for the most part they're doing it no, on they, these well, other yeah they have forms. they have those specific sites that deal with these people and that's the other challenge law enforcement has is that these individuals know where to find these underground sites and and they go there and, and they feed off of each other so you've you've talked about pre and post incidents it is as you've said since day one it's difficult to identify terrorist financing red flags that 
or international. I and mean, we learned that from the 9-11 Commission. Um, I would imagine here it becomes probably more difficult because with, with international terrorism, you can look at donations and uh, you can look at um, contributions coming into an account that seem disparate based on the type of account or the, or, uh, or, or the person. That's probably not happening with domestic terrorists. So how do you look at their employment income or how do you look at support of the families? The sort of things you look at for international, does it track domestic or how do you take that and uh, what examples could you give us, I guess? Well, I think one of the things, and, and let's take a step back. I think this is one of the challenges law enforcement has is that we don't have the track record here from a financial perspective. Traditionally, when you talked about domestic terrorism, we didn't view it from a terrorist financing perspective no. or, or a financial investigative perspective. Now we need to. We need to include that. We need to develop metrics that's going to help us identify these things. So I think um, there has to be a better dedication of resources from the federal side um, and, and come at this more from that financial standpoint of, of what, what are going to be some of the warning signs. So. Going forward, I think one of the areas that, that the FBI started looking at um, was not only from the financial institution standpoint, but the retail standpoint, like the Home Depots, um, different right. or, or Bomb material, Walmart, that kind of Walmart, stuff. You know, it's unfortunate Walmart was yeah. involved in a shooting, but right. they also happen to sell handguns sure. and they, help, they sell these weapons. Um, is there a pattern of activity, you know, the, the, the purchase of ammunition? And this is going to go to that, you know, your, your constitutional is, rights. Yeah, and the bank wouldn't know. They, but would, that's, they can't do that. See, right? that's where you need to have a clearinghouse of sort, maybe the FBI, right. in an information sharing. And, and, you know, to your credit, how often have you been banging the drum about 314A right. and the exchange of information? This is a clear area where if, for instance, the legislation is being proposed on the Hill, if they enhance 314A so that law enforcement provides feedback, that's how we can do it, is law enforcement gets that other intelligence from the retail sector and they're able to feed that to the financial institutions. That would be um, fantastic, but that's, that's, that's still down the road a long way. You know, um, you remember the, uh, the killings of the CIA in the early 90s mm -hmm. um, at Langley. So I was, I was running for state office back then. And being a staffer at the Bankers Association, one of the things I talked about and got crushed for talking about is the notion of know your customer. So what I said, if you are a gun, a gun seller and somebody's coming up to Arlington, Virginia to buy a weapon, but you live in Virginia Beach, why are you doing that? Should there be some obligation on the part of the gun seller to do now? This is this is a small aspect of background checks and all, or the the gun show loophole. We're not here to talk about guns per se, but I remember saying, well, if the banks could do that sort of analysis, which they do, you know, let's face it, we get told by our regulators if things look uh, unusual in terms of a particular account, maybe do a drive-by and look at that restaurant retail operation and see is it really as popular as the money's coming in could be right so that's not a quote requirement but certainly something that gets recommended but the notion somehow that we can't parallel that sort of oversight uh, to retailers is 
not, it's, it's not only baffling to me, it's, counter, it's counterintuitive. Now, this gets away from our conversation, but I just remember at the time, again, this is 30 years ago, whenever it was, uh, 25 plus years ago, and uh, the suggestion was that if you wanted to do that, you wanted to take guns away from everybody. No, you just wanted people to sort of be, use their common sense. And so how do we make bankers use whatever information they do have access to, use their common sense to be helpful here? I think your point is probably the only one, and that is law enforcement gives you some typologies and examples and sort of plug that into your system. But for domestic terrorists, what else could a bank do? Yeah, and you know, just you, you use the analogy or the example of the gun dealers. But let's take that a step further, because mm -hmm. we've had, a, the FBI has had a significant problem with the telecommunications industry, sure. with encrypted phones and getting access to encrypted data. The same point you just made about knowing your customer, why aren't there requirements for telecommunications companies to, to know their customer better, especially if they're going to protect? Because they do to sell them things. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. And, and so that's a problem. And that's... Those are different things that have to be considered with whatever legislation is going to be considered because we do need to go beyond the financial services industry. We do need to go beyond the banks. One of the things you and I both know, uh, having spent so much time in this industry, is the dedication of AML professionals right. yeah. and, and how, how, how devout they are to, to identifying the, these, these problems and, and trying to find um, what are the warning signs that we can use? What are the alert mechanisms that we can we can find that that we can we can implement and institute in our institutions? Part of it is awareness, and how are these individuals potentially going to touch you in in your institution. Um, right now, the biggest domestic threat are these white supremacists who act um, as lone wolves or individuals. You know what happens when we start looking at some of these individuals who form an alliance and and they're more group centric and is are there group interests out there and and there probably are that we need to look at so your dynamic is going to be different from an aml standpoint so it's 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 understanding the crime problem knowing who you're dealing with knowing what kind of funding they're going to need so unfortunately in these particular crimes the, 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 the amount of money that's necessary isn't all that, not much. that much. It's not yeah. overwhelming. Yeah. It doesn't cost that much to buy a weapon. Unfortunately, yeah. it doesn't cost a lot to buy the ammunition that you need. Or rent a car, yeah. gas purchases. Mm -hmm. You talked, um, you know, about sort of pre and post act. It looks like, at least in the post uh, act of the, of the terrorist uh, activity, uh, there's probably more that a financial institution can do in terms of uh, looking at information and getting that information to law enforcement. You know, you've, you've spoken in your presentations about, as we just mentioned, um, uh, purchases of guns, maybe even uh, expenses being at a, get, uh, at a uh, gun range. But bank account closures, this is probably not as common, but I do remember from your discussions about foreign fighters that one of the key red flags are foreign fighter that lived in someplace in the States the account gets closed or dormant, and then suddenly within six, eight months, whatever the time is, in Turkey or Italy or whatever, you start to see activity. Right. Or just the fact that the account is closed and you know no forwarding address, whatever, the monies are taken out. People can close their accounts all the time. Right. But that is that is a warning sign of sorts if you map it with other warning yes. signs, right? Yes, and, and that's what we have to do here is we're going to have to go back and 
if, if I were still involved in the FBI, what I would be doing now is tracking all of these incidents. I'd have analysts analyzing every aspect of these people's lives, their spending patterns, and, and looking for those anomalies or, or outliers that I could start to use um, and, and to furnish to, to financial institutions because, um, and part of what the financial institutions can do to the other question I think you, you asked before is from, from the reactive standpoint because unfortunately 99, 99.5% of these cases are only going to be resolved reactively right. after the event. But one of the things from a law enforcement standpoint that I would be doing as soon as I'm aware of who that actor is, is I'm going back and I'm trying to account for every second of his day, um, both in terms of where he was, what he did, um, how, how, he's, how he came to plan. Can I identify where the breaking point was where he's planning this? But importantly there is the financial timeline, is did he have credit cards, did he have a bank account, you know, especially if he had credit cards and he's using a credit card around, I can start to put together and piece together uh, a profile, a financial profile of that individual, and I think that's critically important. Yeah, you know, it, it, it is. It just, on this one, just seems to me to be so frustrating because as an AML compliance person, an AML investigator, you need something to get that investigation started, right, to, to, to have, a, have a reason to question. So... Who's going to know that um, somebody's made a gun purchase? You know, that's yeah. probably not information you're going to have. Uh, the closure of an account, sure, but again, somebody's moving. They're going to a different bank. Yeah. They don't like the rates, you know, so you need much more than that. So it goes back, I would think, to the simple see something, say something that they say everywhere. Absolutely. And I guess more training on, on your big point on situational awareness uh, even if it's not necessarily financial awareness, is really the only thing we can all hang our hats on. Yeah, I think the concept of situational awareness is really important. I've used that in my training now in terms of terrorist financing, in terms of financial crimes, in terms of fraud, is to be situationally aware. Um, so what are some of the warning signs? What's the touch point to the financial institution uh, when it comes to that? And so likewise, as you're pointing out, from a community standpoint, situational awareness about the surroundings, about the people in, in the community, um, and, and identifying, and as you've pointed out, see something, say something, if you see something unusual. In fact, last week when we gave, I gave this presentation um, in Denver, after the presentation, a lady came up to me and said, I have somebody I need to report, because what you're saying resonates that I think that there's really something wrong with this person in, in, in terms of a terrorist leaning, and who would I talk to? And I, I referred her to the Joint Terrorism Task Force in Denver. I told her, call them right away, and if you don't get through or, or you have a problem or you don't get some satisfaction, call me, and, and I'll put you in touch with somebody who can help you. You know, um, I don't want to diverge too in, into politics, but I think given how how much law enforcement and the intelligence communities have identified this as a rising threat. Obviously, years ago it, it was, and it's not completely not that way now, but uh, it was sort of left-wing radicals. There's still some of that, but there was a lot of that in the 60s and 70s, of course. Uh, but once we had Oklahoma City, that was not left-wing. That was 
I hate the government and anybody associated with government. And, and that was uh, what triggered Timothy McVeigh. And then you had the Unabomber and all that sort of thing. It can't help your former colleagues to be attacked on a regular basis for what they do. No, no organization is perfect, and we certainly know that you know, the FBI has had its ups and downs over time. But I just can't help but think that the public discourse, you can't even call it discourse, but the, the public communication that sees law enforcement with skepticism, I'm not talking about police officers in that, I'm talking more broadly, so intelligence and all that. How are your folks, your former colleagues, they're doing their jobs, how are they handling this? Because it's got to affect their ability, A, from a policy perspective to say, hey, look, if you pass this domestic terrorism platform, we'll get more access. And there'll be some saying, we don't want you to get more access because exactly. we don't trust you. How do they continue to be able to go about their jobs given really the attacks they're getting, as we know, from all sides, including the top? Yeah, um, that that is very troubling. And it's, it's very challenging, especially, you know, as I'm a former FBI agent, so I see it firsthand. And I deal with folks over there, and, and it's very difficult for them. And you mentioned before, when we started the interview, you talked about human intelligence. Right. And this is where it's going to be most damaging, is there has to be a trust relationship. You have to have credibility. And if our government, if our leadership, is questioning the credibility of the FBI or any law enforcement agency, um, that goes right to the heart of their ability to develop human intelligence, to develop the techniques that they need to to identify the, the, the threats and, and to, to take actions. Because one of the problems, one of the challenges we have with domestic terrorism is we don't have an intelligence base. It's not like the FBI has done a really good job on the homegrown violent extremist front, if you right. notice, a lot of people get arrested because they're interacting with undercovers. Mm -hmm. We don't have that same program for domestic terrorism. It's not because, well, we don't have it because, again, the laws are different, so it's, you've got to stay within the framework of the law, but we don't have the intelligence. We don't have that human intelligence. We don't have the intelligence that we need to determine and to identify and target the individuals we need to go after. And, and having worked informants and having developed relationships with informants, uh, when your agency is being attacked as, as, as um, perhaps not being uh, fair-minded or objective, um, it, it really hurts your ability to conduct the investigations. It hurts your ability to develop that intelligence base that you need. And, and there are different and it goes right across the board, domestic terrorism, international terrorism. But, but you know, you're trying to develop community relationships and build partnerships. And, and it's very difficult to build those partnerships when the agency's credibility is attacked. And it's very unfortunate because the FBI has the reputation of being the best law enforcement agency in the world. And here, they've come under such fire. And as you pointed out, not to get political, but right from the top. Sure. Um, that, that sends a very resounding um, message that's, that's, that's very, it, it's difficult for law enforcement to work around. So um, as we're having this conversation, uh, Congress is uh, out. 
Um, you can argue Congress has been out for quite a while, frankly, but they're out. And they're coming back in September. There is a chance that there will be AML reform legislation, uh, from what we hear. Both Senate and House have um, different versions, similar themes, though, a bunch of different things, some studies, um, some changes in things like beneficial ownership, which we've talked about before. But there's also some of, a potential ability to strengthen information sharing. I, you know, there's no way to know this, but the, I guess the hope would be, based on what you've talked about and others in the past several weeks, that perhaps there can be some understanding that financial intelligence in this space, if it can be shared, that private-public partnership could go a long way toward at least heading off some of these horrific attacks, not all of them, sadly, but some of them. So um, you've talked to uh, folks on Capitol Hill. This isn't a main focus by any stretch, but they are looking at improving financial intelligence gathering, right? Yes, and um, from a number of perspectives, but I think to the 314A right. perspective in particular, I was very encouraged uh, by, the, by the House legislation that, that called for law enforcement to openly share information back through 314A. And one of the concerns, one of the concerns we have, and it's been here, I mean, we've heard it for years in the industry, is there's no feedback loop. Yep. And, and I, I've spoken about this a number of times, that when I ran the fi financial crimes program in the FBI, and especially after I set up TFOS in the FBI, I sat down on a regular basis with Jim Sloan, who was the director of FinCEN, and we were trying to come up with, you know, how do we establish a consistent and workable um, feedback mechanism and feedback loop? And there were just so many impediments to deal with that. And so I think I, I, I applaud Congress for this for for this effort, looking at at using 314 of 314A as that feedback mechanism. I think. I think done properly, that could go a long way at, toward information sharing and starting to develop these typologies, and especially on this domestic issue because we just don't know enough about it. And law enforcement needs to do um, in this area um, a much better job in terms of developing the typologies and sharing the typologies that'll be beneficial. And and we just don't have that intelligence today. Yeah, I think if um, this ends up moving the, the thing that that I thought was particularly interesting are the house bills they have um, s some uh, identification of having chief privacy officers at the bank agencies which is a great thing if it factors in what is a privacy issue and what is a security issue and try to deal with manage that very dicey area because that's always in the US we've we've always been hesitant to completely open up all information gathering, some of it for valid reasons, others perhaps because we didn't sort of um, weigh the importance of what we're talking about today to try to get additional information to law enforcement that's really not a privacy concern, especially when most Americans are, are willing to give away information so they can save five bucks uh, you know, on, on buying a, uh, a good somewhere. So we're sort of inconsistent on our concerns about mm -hmm. privacy. But um, as we close this down, your takeaways, and maybe phrase them this way, uh, you're coming into a financial institution like you do many times, and you're talking to the board of directors and senior management, and you've done a presentation, or you're doing a presentation on terrorist financing, and you say, okay, I've given you all of this. Now let's spend a few moments on domestic 
more than a few moments, on domestic terrorism and what you need to be thinking about. What, based on what we've just spent the past half hour talking about, what's the key thing to tell the financial sector? And I know it'll evolve and it'll change. What do they need to be thinking about? Well, you've got to understand the problem, um, and it goes beyond the financial sector. I'll come back to the financial sector real quick. But overall, we have to understand if, if we're going to ha have any impact on dealing with the problem, you've got to get into the ideology, the mindsets, and, and how these people develop these uh, philosophies, so to speak. So we've, we've got to deal with that, and that goes to that strategic side I talked about um, and, and looking at those types of things. Coming back to the financial institution, it's understanding that there is a threat, what the threat is, and then what's the potential touch point with my financial institution. And, and the reality is every financial institution can be touched by these individuals, and, and how do you identify who they are? So it's at a minimum establishing that um, uh, urgent reactive program or response mechanism. I talk about um, financial SWAT teams. Right and, right. and so this is case in point. Yep. If you have a dedicated entity or individuals within the FIU or someplace else in an institution who can study this problem and understand it and, and start to then see how, how these people, uh, how, how they, they spend money, what their patterns of activities are, you can start to develop some of these. And, and this one's going to be a lot more difficult, sure. more, much more challenging. Right. But that's how you start to build, build that because you start to understand that. And then unfortunately, when we do have that act, it's that urgent responsiveness. If, if, you, if you go back and you run that negative news and you have a hit, it's to make the immediate call that a SAR is coming to, to law enforcement so that they can they can act on that because they may not, they may not have that piece of the puzzle, and it may help them answer questions about the motivation or what led to that incident, or help to build a timeline that they're going to need to have um, going back and 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 determining, you know, what was the causation. You know, uh, you were instrumental as the financial sector was as well in taking these concepts in the anti-human trafficking space and saying there's certainly more that. The financial sector can do so they got together with law enforcement and came up with a series of red flags indicators which continues to evolve today so that was a perfect example of that there's no reason we shouldn't do the same thing here given what director ray has said uh, and i'm gonna go back and and uh, reference this uh, op-ed piece from your former colleague uh, ali sufan who talks about congressional changes and it says again access to monitoring tools if you do this but he ends his his piece this way 20 years ago we grossly underestimated the rising threat of Islamist terrorism that inattention cost us dearly on September 11th we cannot afford to wait for the white supremacist equivalent so I would think that your former colleagues would be very much interested in doing more broadly than financial red, uh, red flags, but perhaps this, and we'll put this out on social media this week, and perhaps we get some response from our colleagues, the private-public partners that we've worked with, yeah. and come up with a task force that deals with the financial part of this. Again, it's only one small part, but it's certainly an important part. Well, I think, you know, you, you know um, we, we've dealt with some folks in the FBI on this, and right. they do have 
Um, they've re realigned the counterterrorism division, and they do have a section that's dealing with outreach, and they would be the people to talk to about about this type of partnership. And I'm sure they would they would embrace it because we need to establish these types of working groups. Dennis, uh, really appreciate you taking the time, and uh, even though it's for horrific activity, maybe this is just. Uh, another opportunity for us to get the AML community who wants to be engaged in these things more engaged and, and we're certainly, uh, we, we don't have remotely all the answers. Uh, if you've had a chance to sit and listen to this, we hope you have some additional thoughts and, and maybe we can put that task force idea into practice. Well, I, th I think we can and I think this is an area where we, we really need to make some headway and, and if one of those vehicles is through financial intelligence, then, then all the better. Thanks for your time, man. Appreciate Thanks. it. Thanks. Several weeks ago, FBI Director Chris Wray defended the FBI's handling of domestic terrorism cases. As New Newsweek reported, said the agency takes it extremely seriously and more importantly, that they've made about 100 arrests related to domestic terrorism in the first three quarters of 2019 basically equal to the amount of arrests related to ISIS or Al-Qaeda uh, type activities. I think what was really important here is that the FBI director talked a number, about a number of cases that they've handled regarding white supremacist violence, including the pipe bomb case, the Tree of Life synagogue, and you know I think it's important to note that he has been pretty adamant that white supremacy has been a major, major problem and focus. So um, we should be proud of the fact that both the FBI is engaged and also could use our help in our uh, AML community. As Dennis and I talked about, we have some models that we've used in the past regarding um, anti-human trafficking, dealing with the theft of cultural artifacts and antiquities, and a whole series of things where the private sector financial private sector has stepped up. I would suggest that this is another space where if we work together with the analysts in law enforcement, with the analysts in the AML sector, perhaps we can come up with some more specific indicators or red flags regarding domestic terrorism that um, can assist law enforcement not always post-action uh, but prior to the action occurring. So if you're interested in that, please reach out to us on the AML Right Source website. You can send me a note, you can send Dennis a note. Um, I think this is an action that uh, you know, we can put together regionally or nationally, and it's certainly something that Dennis has done a lot of work in terms of writing about it and training bankers and law enforcement about it. So um, as horrific as these actions have been the past several months, I remain optimistic, as does Dennis, that working together, we may not be able to solve things, but we can get better prepared and increase our due diligence. So if you have more ideas about anything we talked about, please feel free to reach out. This is John Byrne from AML Conversations, thanking you for listening today. And let's all hang in there and work hard to deal with this horrific, series of situations and I know we can do that.